0: Hey guys, uh, my name is Ward Evans. For those of you who don't know me, and I am, like Elliot said, the uh, male intern at RUF uh, here at Mississippi State. Uh, we good? Sick. Um, okay, so uh, just a couple. Awesome. Just a couple things about me uh, to begin. Um, I'm from Athens, Georgia. I graduated from the University of Georgia. And I am incredibly nervous. Like, wow, just really, really nervous. There, It looks like there are a lot more of y'all from here up front than it did when I was sitting in my seat, so that's good. Um, so if you see me up here and I am struggling over words or forget how to speak entirely... Uh, you might think to yourself, "Wow, Ward must be very nervous, and also must be really bad at public speaking." And you would be right on both of those counts. Uh, but but another reason why I may be having trouble is I actually have a stutter, so uh, which is which comes in handy for public speaking. It works really well for that. Um, so if if you know I'm having some problems here, just bear with me. I'll try to not I'll try to not elongate the sermon and have you guys out here by no later than ten thirty. Um, um, so. In keeping with the Old Testament theme we've been in this week, uh, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is, of course, one of those minor prophets that no one really knows exists, much less like reads. Um, but it's got this amazing picture of the gospel in, in uh, the, the third chapter. So if y'all will follow along with me, um, we'll dive in. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the lord said to satan the lord rebuke you o satan the lord who has chosen jerusalem rebuke you is not this a brand plucked from the fire now joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said behold i have taken away i've taken your iniquity away from you and i will clothe you with pure vestments and i said let them put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments And the angel of the the Lord was standing by. And And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Will we all pray with me? Um, Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us all here together tonight. Um, God, I pray that you would uh, just give me words to speak and that you would give everyone here um, eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us in this passage. Um, In your name we pray. Amen. So, have you ever experienced something that that was bad, or you thought was bad, but that you know, with a little bit of separation, s- some years, it ended up actually being good for you? Well, I've been through a lot of those experiences, but one that sticks out to me is when my family moved from Tuscaloosa to Athens. So, um, so I was born in Athens, but when I was, uh, uh, but but I lived in Tuscaloosa for about ten years. Now. Don't worry. I was never an Alabama fan. Never have been, never will be. But I loved Tuscaloosa. You know, you know um, I loved the people there. I made a ton of friends and had all these memories, and it was great. Um, um, and I never thought about leaving. My parents, however, who are, as Elliot said, sitting right back there, they had different ideas. They always considered Athens home, and, and so one day when my dad got a job that would allow him to live and work anywhere in the southeast… I was told out of the blue, hey, we're moving to Athens, and uh, I did not take that very well. I was uh, enraged. I was sad. My parents were ruining my life. I was never going to have the same kind of friends in Athens that I had in Tuscaloosa. I was never going to enjoy Athens the the same way I enjoyed Tuscaloosa. And to top it off, the one thing I was looking forward to, which is that Athens had a Zaxby's. That went away because about two months before we moved, they put his axe piece in Tuscaloosa. I kid you not. So so at that point, what was the point of of moving anyway? Well, mom and dad didn't see it that way, and they didn't really give me a deciding vote in the matter for some reason. So we packed up and we moved to Athens. And I can honestly say it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I mean I made such good friends, and I had all these experiences, and I mean who I am as a person would not – be the same today if I didn't move over to Athens. And um, um, and how common is that? You know, how often do we go through things? You know, sometimes things that include very legitimate, very real suffering and sadness. But you know, when when we look back, we realize that it's, that it's, that it was good for us. It's what we needed. Well. It just it goes to show us that it's it's difficult for us to see to have a vision for what's God for what God's doing in our lives while that's going on, um, and that's kind of where we find the Israelites here in this chap um, in this chapter. They've just gotten back, or done with like seventy years of exile in Babylon, and they don't they don't really know what's next. Um, <sighs> Excuse me. And in this vision, God wants to give them a vision um, of what his plan is for them. And he gives them that vision by looking at three truths. The first truth is their uncleanness due to sin. The second truth is his unobstructed plan and power. And the third truth, truth is his unending provision. And yes, this is an RUF sermon, so I had to have three points, and they all had to end, begin with the same um, same letters. I think I would get fired if I didn't, so uh, I should be good. Um, so let's begin by looking at the Israelites' uncleanest due to sin. So the vision opens up with Joshua the high priest standing in heaven, clothed in filthy garments. Now, the Hebrew word there—I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but what I've read is the Hebrew word there more literally translates to excrement stained. Uh, so y- usually the high priests would go to the temple, and they would go— into the temple in these ornate garments and they would go on behalf of the people to kind of uh, to 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 atone for the sins of, his, of, um, of Israel but here we see him in heaven clothed in garments stained with feces uh, so he's stained not only with his own sin but with the sin of all the people of Israel and and those sins make him unclean now for a little bit of context um, the 7 years of exile that I spoke of That the Israelites had just been through. um, That began with this brutal siege of Jerusalem. And they were in Babylon for 70 years. And when you hear brutal siege of Jerusalem. I'm afraid that we might kind of like gloss over that. And, and and, And have an idealized, you know, like veggie tales. Throwing slushies off the wall of Jericho at people. This was. If you read the book of Lamentations. This was terrible. I mean. Lamentations talks about cannibalism within the walls of Jerusalem. It talks about massive loss of life and the glory of God leaving the people and leaving the temple. This was quite literally an apocalyptic event for the Israelites, and that God made very clear was a judgment on them because of their sin. so when the remnant, when Zechariah and Joshua and everyone else got back to Jerusalem, you might think, okay, they just went through 70 years of pretty hard times. They should have learned by now. They definitely haven't. Um, one of Zechariah's contemporary prophets, Haggai, which is another minor prophet who I've read. I don't even know. It's fine. Um, so he... He tells us in, in his book that the, people were, that the people were much more concerned with building up their own name and their own security and their own kingdom than building up God's kingdom, which they would do by building the temple. And this just goes to show us how pervasive and persistent sin is. Even, even when we know better, even after we're chastised for it, we still sin. I mean have you ever put food dye in a cup of water? Sin is a little bit like that. In the same way that, that the food dye permeates every bit of water in that cup, sin permeates every bit of us. And what God wanted people or, or – um, and, and what God wanted to see, wanted the Israelites to see through, through um, the judgment of exile was that sin always necessitates a judgment. There has to be a payment for sin. Now – a lot of times, I'll read the Old Testament, and I'll get kind of annoyed at Israel. I'll be like, "Oh my gosh, guys, you're just you're so blockheaded! God is leading you by a pillar of fire, and He's doing crazy lightning things, giving you all these like warnings and things, and you're still sinning. What is wrong with you people?" The unfortunate thing is, we are just like that. Um, sin is always in us, and we are always in sin. And the sad thing is, a lot of times we don't seem to care, or at least I don't seem to care. You know, we don't really think sin is as big of a deal to, uh, to God or as big of a problem in us as it actually is. <laughs> and it reminds me of a scene in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, it's, uh, if, uh, if you haven't read those books or watched those movies, honestly, don't listen to me. Go do that right now. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, but the, the main character of, of the series, Frodo, has this ring. And he's getting chased around by all these riders in black. And he doesn't know why they're chasing him. And they're terrifying. And he and his buddies being, have been chased for days. And it's like, they're like terrified. They don't know what's going on. But they finally get to this tavern. They finally kind of like let their hair down, chill, such a relax. And they meet a guy named Strider. Strider's this like brooding, angsty character. Um, who, um, well, some stuff happens that I won't go into because I'm trying to restrain myself. And... Um, Strider eventually takes Frodo, grabs him up, whisks him away, throws him into his room, and begins to interrogate him. And he finally asks Frodo, are you frightened? And Frodo, being being impressively honest, says, yeah, I am frightened. And that's to the point when we would expect Strider to be like, don't don't be scared anymore, I'm here, or something like that. But no, Strider locks eyes with him and goes, not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. Which is A, one of the coolest lines ever. But B, really exemplary of how we treat sin. Um, Whether through a lack of knowledge or through a lack of care, we just, we a lot of times don't think sin is that big of a deal. But God knows it is. God, like Strider, knows the danger that they're in and knows the peril that we are in. And like Elliot was saying a couple weeks back, God since the beginning of time has told Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But how much thought do we give to our sin? You know, how much are we broken by it? Do we do we think about the gravity of our sin? You know, if we do stop and think about ourselves, we kind of come to come to think about. Sorry, if we stop and think about ourselves, we come to realize how messed up we are, which is probably why we don't stop and realistically think about ourselves often. Um, but. Sometimes, if we do, we can have kind of the opposite problem of not thinking about sin not enough, but of not but about but of thinking about sin too much. Satan can show us our filthy garments, and he and we can think that we're beyond hope, we're beyond reach, we're a lost cause. But God didn't let His people stay in sin before exile, and God didn't let His people stay in sin after the exile. And God isn't in the business of letting us stay in sin today. The point of judgment in this particular case, the point of uh, 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 the judgment of exile was to bring the Israelites to repentance and eventually restoration. The point—God's purpose is never to judge us, to put his thumb on us and see us squirm. His point is to restore us and to bring us to repentance. So the question then becomes, how is he going to do that? How, how is God going to fulfill his purpose? Well, for that, we need to look at um, the next part of the passage and see God's unobstructed power and plan. So let's look back at Joshua. Um, as we already discussed, his role as high priest was to kind of mediate, go go to God on behalf of the people. Um, and that's clearly at odds with the reality of his uncleanness. I mean, he's in heaven, in the presence of God. This is the same God who, when Isaiah came in his presence, screamed, Woe is me! Literally, I'm, un- I- I'm-, I'm being undone. And the same God who, when Moses spoke to him, glowed. Like, let's— like, like a glow stick, but from his, like, person, glowed. And he is speaking in heaven to this God, surrounded by this glory, covered or robed in garments that have feces on them. If you've ever been underdressed to an event or not, like, known the dress code, you don't know what this would be like, frankly. Um, But you may have a little bit of a minuscule idea ...of how out of place Joshua would feel. And therefore how out of place we would feel in that position. Because Joshua here represents not only Israel, but he represents all of us. We all stand before the Lord in filthy garments. We're all on trial, and the holy God of the universe is presiding. And Satan, as the prosecution, has an airtight case. All he has to do is point at what we're wearing... I mean, the obviousness of our guilt is like if a murderer walks into a courtroom and says, All right, what's up, guys? Uh, totally killed that dude. Here's the gun I used. Uh, here's, my, here's some DNA samples. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it was me in the library with a candlestick. You know, like it's, like, it's just like very, very much just like, this is it. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're, if we're truly honest with ourselves... If we were to imagine ourselves in that position, that's exactly what we would say. Because we would be faced with the reality of our brokenness and our sin. We're guilty. Satan knows we're guilty. We are objectively guilty. So the question then becomes, where do we go from here? What's next? Have you ever seen those Facebook Jesus memes? I promise it's going to turn back. Uh, (laughs) Promise. I'm not just up here talking about memes. So... They're like, usually, you know, you're like, random aunt you've never spoken to or whatever puts them up. And they're like, of Satan and Jesus arm wrestling, or like, Satan is supporting certain political candidates and Jesus is supporting other political candidates. And it's, you just kind of, usually you just kind of like roll your eyes and go on your merry way. There's one in particular that I remember that really stuck with me, though. And it's a text conversation between Jesus and Satan. And it starts off, and Satan's like, ha ha ha. And Jesus is like, why are you laughing? And Satan's like, because the person reading this claims to be your child, but they won't even type amen or share this post. (laughs) And Jesus is like, nah they are my child because they will both type amen and share it. (laughs) And then Satan comes back with, well, I guess we'll see. But, you know, if they don't do do at least one, then they're my child. And I can just like see Jesus passive aggressive going like, yeah, I hope we will see. We will see, definitely. He's going to do it. He'll do it. Which is insane, uh, and you know, honestly, I think, honestly, I think I didn't type "amen" or "share," so I don't. I'm probably not, you know, qualified to be up here before you guys. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's. But sometimes it's how we think, though, you know, right? Sometimes we think, "Oh man, God and." Satan are warring, and if it's not an equal contest, then it's a battle, and, oh, man, I hope I choose the right thing, Jesus. Oh, no, I hope, like, Jesus ends up winning in the end. Oh, gosh, it's, it's stressful. But that's not at all what we see in the passage, is it? In the passage, Satan literally isn't even given the chance to speak. In verse 2, just the second verse of the chapter, God rebukes Satan and casts him out. Let's go back over this. Satan has an airtight case. By rights, Joshua doesn't even have a right to be in the room because of his obvious guilt. And God doesn't even even listen to what Satan has to say. He just says Joshua is a brand plucked from the fire, which is imagery that simply indicates that he's being saved from judgment. And that's that. It's done. But the the best news is is that actually that's not that. It's not done. It gets better because God doesn't just cast Satan out. He commands that Joshua's robes be removed. And he doesn't just command that Joshua's robes be removed. He commands that he be clothed in new, pure vestments. So Joshua's sin, his shame, his guilt, it's all taken away. And it's replaced with God's righteousness. And then you hear Zechariah in verse 5 yell up, put a clean turban on his head! And God does that too. Joshua doesn't do anything... Zechariah doesn't do anything, and God doesn't ask anybody for permission. He just commands it to be so, and it is. God wants to show us that his plan is not simply to judge us. His plan is to restore us, to take away our iniquity, our shame, our guilt, our sin, and clothe us in righteousness. And this scene is right in line with Romans 8, 33-34, in which Paul asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, we tend to think that because we continue in particular sins or because we continue sinning that, you know, I don't deserve God's love or I don't deserve God's mercy or grace. I don't, I'm just too, too bad of a person. And you know what? Yeah, you're right. You don't deserve any of that. I don't. None of us do. But that's not the point. The point is that God loves us despite our uncleanness. That voice that accuses you by saying, hold on, are you about to pray? Seriously? Are you going to read the Bible? Do you know what you did, did last night? Do you remember that? Do you want me to go through a list of all the things that you've done just today, much less in the past week? That voice is not God's voice. That's Satan's voice. And what this passage so- shows us is the only person listening to Satan is you because God has already cast him out. God has the authority to do what he will, when he will, and nobody, not you, not me, not Satan himself, can oppose him. Now, another interesting element of this passage is the presence of two authoritative speakers, if you look closely, uh, the Lord and the angel of the Lord. So it's the Lord who speaks initially in verse 2 and casts Satan out, uh, but it's the angel of the Lord who in verse 4 commands that Joshua's robes be removed. Um, and that new robes be given to him. He's the one who sits in judgment. He conveys the Lord's message to, to, um, to Joshua and Zechariah uh, in verses 6 through 10. And he's the one who proclaims the coming of the branch. And the branch is, the branch is an interesting character as well. The branch, is said in verse 9, is going to remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And in verse 10, the imagery of people sitting under vines and fig trees is simply indicative of the lasting peace that the branch is going to bring. So the question is, who is the branch? To answer that question, we need to look at God's unending provision. Now, it's clear that Joshua and the priests aren't the branch because it explicitly says in verse 8 that they're a sign of the coming branch. They're like him, but they're not him. Um, The branch is spoken of elsewhere in the Old Testament in a bunch of different places, uh, but it's spoken of specifically in Isaiah 4 and Jeremiah 23. Now, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. So, um, in Isaiah four, the branch rules over a people who have been purged from their sin. So, then that begs the question. You know, all this stuff kind of begs the question: How is this all going to happen? If every, if the branch rules over a people, and people are all as unclean as Joshua, how will these, how how will people be purged from their sin? Well, Zechariah 13.1 kind of ties all this together. It ties together uh, Jeremiah twenty three and Isaiah four and Zechariah three. And it tells us how, how this will happen. Um, so Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Now, there's an old hymn that we sometimes sing in RUF that speaks of this fountain as well. It's called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, if you're new to RUF, I get that that imagery is kind of strange. Um, but bear with me. Um the opening line goes like this there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains friends Emmanuel Jesus Christ is the branch he took the punishment we deserve he paid for our sins on the cross he intercedes for us at the right hand of the father and he will come one day to judge all of mankind and the really cool thing is and I'm no theologian, so if, I'm, if you you know a couple of years from now you find out that you know your old intern was wrong, please don't hate me. Uh, but the consensus of actual theologians who actually went to seminary and actually know what they're talking about, um, the consensus is that the angel of the Lord here is actually the preincarnate Jesus. So what? What we then see is even before he came to earth, he was already judging in power and righteousness and holiness and truth. Yes, but he was also judging in grace and mercy and love. Which begs the question: How can he do this? How? What gives him the right to declare that our sins are forgiven? You know, God has gone to great pains through uh, through. The judgment to show the Israelites that sin always necessitates a, a payment, there has to be some sort of judgment for sin, so how is Joshua, who was clearly guilty? How was he pardoned Hebrews nine tells us how, Hebrew Hebrews nine yeah hebrews nine tells us how uh, good um, <laughs> it begins by discussing how the high priests at the time um, Historically, they would go to God to atone for uh, the sins of the people. So, on the holiest day in all of Judaism, the day of atonement, they would go into the temple. It was the holiest place on earth. It's where God resided. Within the temple, they'd go into the holy of holies. It was the holiest place in the temple. It's where God resided. And then within the holy of holies, they'd go to the mercy seat. It was the holiest place in the holy of holies. It's where God resided. So, to go back through that, they went to the holiest of holiest of holiest places on earth… And they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat where God resided to atone for the sins of the people. Hebrews, and Hebrews 9 continues by saying, but when Christ appeared – or no, hold on. This is important. They had, good. They'd have to do this year in and year out. Every single year they'd have to go back in and they'd have to atone for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9 continues by saying, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, and tent here is a reference to the tabernacle, which is a precursor of the temple, so when you hear tent, think temple. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of God, who through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And y'all, what good news! Christ died once for all. All your sins, all your shame, all your failures, have been nailed to the cross. And not just the ones that you've done, mind you, but the ones that you're going to do. You see, Jesus didn't die to give you a clean slate that now you've got to keep clean and maintain. No, he died to give you a righteousness that you could call his own, his righteousness, that you could call his own. Just like Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 23 that we just read, the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus died to give you a righteousness that is his, but that you can eternally call yours and since we and since he has to give us that righteousness that means we can't go get it on our own which is possibly a little bit discouraging but i think it's the best news in the world because that means that we can't do anything. We don't have to do anything to get it. And so that means that our identity isn't in what all the things we so often use to justify ourselves or to make ourselves okay. So our, our identity isn't in our looks. It's not in our grades. It's not in how funny we are or how smart we are. It's not in uh, how many or how few people know about the bands we listen to. It's not in how cool or uncool we are. It's not in how well we do in college or how much we can make people laugh, or anything, any of the numerous things. I could go on for forever. I probably went on for too long, but it's fine. Um, um, so the numerous things we put our hope in, our identity isn't in that. If you believe in Jesus tonight, his righteousness is yours. And you can't gain it or lose it on your own. So our identity isn't in ourselves. It's in Christ and what he's done. 1 Peter chapter 1 says we, that we have a living hope. ...through the resurrection of Jesus, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Your sins have been forgiven, and when God looks at you, he doesn't see y- you. He sees Christ's righteousness as your own. Satan stands ready to accuse you today, yes, but just as we saw in Romans 8, Jesus intercedes for you. He is even now at the right hand of the Father, pleading, the, pleading your case, not, not based on you, but on the merits of his blood... And tonight, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, that righteousness can be yours, too. Now, in a room this big with this many people, I'm sure there have to be some people who are, if not literally the metaphorically rolling their eyes, not buying anything of what I'm saying. And if that's the case, awesome. Really glad you're here. Um, Allie and Elliot and I would love to talk with you. Um, But in closing, I'd like to ask you a question. On some level, don't you wish it was true? You know, I mean, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, if we all look at ourselves, we can all see that we're broken. There's something wrong with the world, with us. Don't you wish there was some way to be? Mean, don't you wish there was some way to be made whole again? Um, a way to be free from the pressures of always having to excel, to perform, to be the best, to be the most whatever. You know, in Greek mythology, uh, there's a there's a guy named Sisyphus. I Think I'm pronouncing that right? who was doomed to, for all eternity, roll a boulder up a hill. And he would roll it up the hill, and it would roll back down. And he'd roll it back up, and it would roll back down. Um, over and over and over again for until the end of time. And I think that in in some ways, that's us. You know, whatever we put our identity and our worth and our value and however we try to be okay, that's the boulder and through toil and sweat and tears and blood and whatever we push that up onto the top of the hill, hoping that when it's up there, we're going to be okay and it gets to the top oh shoot um, jeez, we're fine and it gets to the top and it did, and we feel like OK for you know, maybe half a second. But then all it takes is one criticism, one party you're not invited to, one just one you know, situation or scenario where you're not the prettiest, funniest, smartest, whatever person in the room. And the boulder comes tumbling back down, and we've got to go through all the work of pushing it back up the hill, hoping. Desperately hoping that this time it'll be different. This time it'll stay up there. But knowing on some level that it never actually is going to. And friends, if that's you tonight, if you identify with that struggle of constantly trying to prove yourself valuable or worthy, then I want to tell you that Jesus came to save you from that struggle. Matthew Matthew 23 um In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the only one making you work for your value is you. Jesus offers you endless value, love, righteousness, peace, and security. That's what God wanted the israel or that's the vision that God wanted the Israelites to have, and that 's the vision that God wants us to have tonight um, let 's pray dear God, um, thank you for your son, thank you for what you've done for for us God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and love. Um, I pray that you would help us to go about our spring break and the, and just the rest of our existence um trusting in you trusting in what you've done and trusting uh that you love us and that you came to die for us despite our uncleanness and despite our sin um keep us uh keep us all safe over spring break and bring us all back together safely um after in your name we pray amen